Uh, If you want to grab a Bible, we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, but we're not going to get there till just a little bit later, so you can turn to the end of Matthew and we'll go there in a bit. Like Kevin said, uh, this is going to be a standalone sermon. Uh, Next week, when we kick off our new outdoor worship gathering, we're also going to kick off a new sermon series. And what we're going to do is we're going to be studying through the book of Acts. We're going we're gonna to be reading the stories of Jesus followers who were creating the church in uncertain times, and we're going to let their stories inform us, God's people who are, who are creating new forms of church in our uncertain times. But before we start that next week, I want to talk to us about examination specifically self-examination. There's a really famous quote. I'm guessing you may have heard it before. Uh, It says this. Hoda anexitostos bios ubiotos anthropo. Right? Am I right? Super familiar. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. You may have heard it in translation. It somewhat famously was translated... The unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life. Socrates said this near the end of his life, and his student Plato wrote it down. Um, I translated it in a slightly different way. For humans, the unexamined life is not livable. Socrates believed that in our lives, to make our lives the most joyful, worthwhile, positive things they can be, we have to stop and look inward. We cannot simply go through life. We must consider our lives. There's another part of the story right before uh, Socrates uh, was actually put to death. He was on trial. He was uh, accused. He was sentenced to execution. And just before he died, he said some things that sort of express what he meant uh, when, he, when he was concerned about the unexamined life. He said to his friends, he said, hey, when I'm dead, can you make sure that my sons are content- continually troubled by you? If they act in error, would you punish them? He went on to say, if my sons are living for any purpose except the one purpose of virtue, That's what Socrates believed was most important. If they're living any other purpose, relentlessly trouble them in their lives so that they might turn from their wicked ways. See, it's not just the unexamined life, but once you examine your life, we have to do something about it. We could actually actually maybe translate it one other possible way. The un... There we go. The unchallenged life is not worth living. It's not just examination, but once you've examined it, questioning what I found. Is this right? Is this good? Or do I need to change somehow? It turns out um, this same idea shows up all over the place in scriptures. On the mouths of people like James, the brother of Jesus, who said, when you go and look in a mirror, don't walk away and forget what you saw. Because if you see a problem, when you examine your life in a mirror, you have to challenge and change that problem. 
The psalmist said in many times and in many places, meditate on the law of God day and night. Well, why do I meditate on it? So that my life might be challenged and changed to live the way God would have me live. Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God for Christ was the ideal towards which all of our lives are meant to be lived. And so here's what we're going to do together today. I'm going to ask you to join me in examining our lives. And we're going to do that today because, as you know, we're living in a, mu- in a bunch of uncertainty. And uncertainty causes us, I think, to often just sort of hunker down and try to keep moving forward, to stay busy and not get distracted by all that's around us. But I think what we need to do today instead of relentless forward progress, is pause for a moment of self-examination. And here's how I want to uh, kind of frame that examination today. I think a lot of us, when we find ourselves in the midst of uncertainty, we respond by saying, I want certainty. Which is why I've titled my sermon today, I Want Certainty, Faithful Living, in uncertain times. And so humor me for a moment as I explore this relationship with our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our actions, this relationship between those and living in uncertain realities. So here's my first observation. We like certainty. We like it. It's comforting to us. It's soothing to us. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. It's satisfying. Certainty is. And we see this all over the place. One story that came to mind, favorite movie of mine from long ago, Searching for Bobby Fischer. Here's a picture from the climactic moment at the end of this movie. The young boy, Josh, who you see his face there, He's a young chess master, and he's growing in the world of chess. And it's come to the championship match, sort of the pinnacle of Josh's Josh's chess career. And so, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, you can imagine the scene, right? A giant room filled with mahogany tables and polished chess boards. Nobody else is there. It's just Josh and his opponent, and the music is swelling. I'd love when the music swells. It's just, it's just good, right? And then you can hear the chess pieces moving, click, clock, click. And none of us have any clue what they're actually doing on the board, but it's very exciting nonetheless. And then suddenly, the music drops down, and Josh looks up at his opponent, and the viewer goes, what in the world just happened? They just moved another chess piece, I don't know. So then the movie cuts to Josh's chess coach. Because yes, that's a thing. There are people who have chess coaches. That's great. And the chess coach says, he made a mistake. Josh, you've won the game. And then here's the line. It's an amazing line. The coach says, it's 12 moves away, but Josh, you can see it. Don't move until you see it, Josh. And we're all like 12 moves away. I can't, I can't even look one move away when I'm playing chess. How do you look 12 moves away? But it cuts back to Josh. And that's where this picture comes in. 
Because we can see in Josh's eyes that he can see it. He can see the 12's moves. And Josh reaches his hand out, and he offers a draw to his opponent. He says, you've lost. You just don't know it yet. And inside, we're all like, oh, that's amazing, because Josh knows that he's going to win, but the other guy doesn't know. And the certainty that Josh has just kind of makes us go, oh, it's just so much fun, because we love certainty. It's enjoyable. It's comforting. Let's talk about another place where we see this love of certainty. I know, you already know where I'm going to go. American politics and elections. Okay, that was, that was a joke. Nobody in the room laughed, but maybe you laughed at home. See, here's the thing about elections. These are some of the most uncertain experiences of our lives, right? We've got hundreds of millions of people voting, and their votes go into this baffling thing called the Electoral College. And how is any person supposed to understand this complicated system? So the news media knows that we're uncomfortable with all the certainty, or the uncertainty. And so they've created a system for soothing our anxiety. Instead of hundreds of millions of votes in a complicated electoral college, they make a map. And when they think they can call the state for one candidate or another, they tap the map and it changes color to either red or to blue. And then we, the viewer, have this sort of, ah, I don't have to be stressed by all the uncertainty of our complicated system. I just have to look at little red states and little blue states, and now I know what's happening because I have certainty. Or maybe there's a little more uh, uh, immediate, friendly certainty, like we at this church had for a long, long time, the utter certainty. We knew beyond a doubt that if you were new, if you were a visitor to our church, and you walked through our doors back when people walked through our doors. We knew beyond a doubt that this man, Ron Maul, he would greet you with a warm smile and a handshake. Do you guys remember handshakes? It's a thing that people do when they greet one another. But for a long time, we had the certainty that Ron Maul would greet everyone, and it was just the joy until he retired. And now we're all standing on our front porch in distress and disarray, going, oh, what are we going to do? By the way, if you're new and a visitor here, I really hope, even though this is virtual, um, that you do get connected. If you want to meet some people, get plugged into some other community groups and the other virtual environments we have, uh, do let us us know. Uh, We know it's tricky to get connected through the camera, but we're so glad you're here. Um, Okay, one last example of certainty. Um, Parenting. Here's two of my kids. Tobiah and Esther, and the nice thing about parenting is that you know with utter certainty that whatever you tell your children to do, that is exactly every single time what they will... Okay, that's not a good example. Let's move on. So, in summary, we crave certainty, especially in the midst of uncertainty. Uncertainty makes us uncomfortable, and certainty is soothing to us. But here's the strange other side of that coin. We see this desire for certainty in so many places, but I think we actually also like uncertainty sometimes. I think we actually also find enjoyment in uncertainty sometimes. A couple examples. 
Uh, sports movies, one of my favorites, one of the best, Miracle, about the 1980 Olympic hockey team. And the reason sports movies are so awesome is because they successfully build tension and conflict over what's going to happen. Are they going to win or are they going to lose? Is the boy going to get the girl? Is the girl going to get the boy? Is it going to be resolved? That tension and uncertainty is what keeps us on the edge of our seats. Here's another example. Um, When young parents announce the gender of their coming baby. There's now a whole industry around selling products to announce the gender of your baby. And again, the uncertainty is what makes it so great. We're just like, well, we know you're pregnant, but we don't know if it's going to be a boy or a girl that I'm so excited to find out. We love the uncertainty. And think about it. If there wasn't any uncertainty, maybe you were a red and olive colobus monkey, they don't have gender. So when they have babies, there's no excitement in the birth announcement. Or maybe the small cuttlefish, it's red, it's cute. Or maybe the giant cuttlefish. If you're a cuttlefish and all of your offspring are just cuttlefish, what's the announcement look like? It's a cuttlefish. It just lacks the same excitement. So, my conclusion. We like both certainty and uncertainty. But as I've I've been thinking about that, as I've been doing some examination of my life, as I've been examining how I respond to the uncertainty in the world around me, I've thought, is that really the case? Or maybe there's something else underneath this going on that will help me put this in perspective. Here's the conclusion I came to. I wonder if you would um, consider if you see this showing up in your life. We like certainty and uncertainty when they are to our advantage. See, I don't think it's actually about the certainty or uncertainty, but rather it's about when uncertainty is a threat or a fear for us, for our well-being, and for the people we love, then we don't like it. Because we don't like the threat and the danger. And certainty often means the danger or the threat is taken away. And if that's true, then the implication might be, again, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know exactly who all you are, what's going on in your life, but I'd invite you to consider whether this is true in your heart. Maybe we don't actually like certainty or uncertainty, but we like ourselves. Maybe what we really like is whatever's good for us and whatever gives us more comfort and more of what we're looking for in the world. I think one of the reasons uncertain times are so uncomfortable is because we fear a lot of the potential negatives that might come to our lives. And that's natural. And that's even healthy to avoid dangers and to get yourself into safe, safe circumstances. It's healthy and natural until it completely takes over your life. It's healthy to avoid danger until that's the only thing your life is about and all of the opportunity or potential good is completely missed. 
So here was our opening question. What should we do in uncertain times? And here's, here's how we answer questions like that. Here at Centennial Covenant Church, um, when we have big, heavy, kind of heart and soul questions, we turn to the scripture. Because everybody lives their life based on something, and we choose to base our lives on the teaching of Jesus Christ as it was written down by, his, by people who knew him. It was written down in a book that we call the Bible. And so we're going to turn to Scripture right now, and we're going to travel in time. We're going to do a little bit of Doctor Who, and we're going to travel in time back to Jerusalem in 30 A.D., 2,000 years ago. Across the world, they spoke a different language. Um, their reality was so far from us in so many different ways. And I want to help our hearts and our minds get into the realities of first century Jesus followers living in Jerusalem around 30 AD. And I want to help us kind of imagine and even feel, even, even uh, kind of get a, 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 a gut level experience of how crazy it was to live in Jerusalem at this time as a Jesus follower. So I just want to highlight a few things that were going on at that place at that time. First of all, for the Jesus followers, this is 30 AD, Jesus has lived, he's done his whole teaching and healing ministry, he's gathered disciples all around Israel-Palestine, and then he was executed. After his execution, his disciples lost hope. Until three days later, he rose back from the dead. Something that anybody in their right mind, both then and now, would not believe unless they saw it with their own eyes. And hundreds of people saw it. And they wrote it down and they testified to it. And so now, at this time, about 30 AD, Jesus has died and rose again. And he's spending time with his disciples, talking to them, teaching them, getting them ready for what's next in the church. And the disciples are looking at the world around them going, okay, Jesus, I'm glad you're here because there's a lot of things going on in the world around us. First of all, there is a lot of political tensions in our world. I mean, first of all, the Roman government just executed you, Jesus, our leader of a peaceful movement. If that's not a political tension to make us afraid, I don't know what is. But then on top of that, the Jewish religious authorities, a lot of them are in bed with the government officials. They're paying each other behind the, you know, under the table and behind the curtain. And that makes us even more concerned because we're Jesus followers, but Jesus was a Jewish man and we don't know how all of this goes together. So they lived in a time with, with a lot of political tensions. Next, their lives were characterized by economic distress. For as much as the Roman Empire was one of the greatest and wealthiest uh, uh, empires in the world at that time, the vast majority of people fell into one of two economic categories. Almost everybody fell into the categories of either the poor or the poorer. There were people who were living at a subsistence level or there were people living below a subsistence level, and that was just about everybody. There were a few people who were not poor, and then another small percentage of people who were wealthy, but pretty much everybody else was scraping 
by every day. And they're trying to reconcile their economic distress with this new movement that they're living in the midst of. Next, uh, Jerusalem, 30 AD, for the young Jesus followers, was a place of significant ethnic division. See, Jesus did incredible things in his ministry. If you've read any of the Gospels or heard about Jesus, you've probably heard a lot of the stories, like when he met with the Samaritan woman at the well, and in doing so, broke down such gigantic ethnic and societal barriers. Jesus was constantly bringing together people from different races, people speaking different languages, even people from different socioeconomic classes. I mean, Jesus brought together the likes of a wealthy, thieving tax collector with poor, smelly fishermen, and he brought them all in the same group, and they lived together, and they ate together, and they traveled together. He brought Jewish people and Gentile people together in fellowship with one another. Now, the very early Jesus followers knew that the love of God through Christ was powerful enough to overcome these barriers. But yet still, they knew that these tensions were real problems that they had to figure out. And if when we read through Acts, we're going to see how these ethnic divisions really did become major challenges for the church. Okay, so if you lived in Jerusalem as a Jesus follower in 30 AD, you would be experiencing political tensions, economic distress, divisions over race and ethnicity. Nothing at all like the world we live in today. I mean, we're going to have to work hard to figure out how to bridge that gap between the ancient stories and our modern context. Or maybe, just maybe, the challenges they faced way back then were at their core the exact same challenges that we as Jesus followers are facing in our lives today. And in all of this uncertainty, the church had a giant project that they needed to undertake. It was a church creating new ways of community and worship and mission. I mean, they knew some of their Jewish roots but they were also, Jesus had something, started something completely new. And they had to figure out when our old familiar ways have gone away and we have to create new ways of being a community following Christ, how do we do that together? Hmm. Almost like we, who haven't been meeting in this room where we've been familiar with. We've been meeting virtually, and that's a new and maybe uncomfortable or a different way to do community, to do worship, to carry out our mission together. And we're trying to figure this out together in the midst of a world filled with political tensions, economic distress, ethnic division all around us. And so where do we look? Where do we look for the guidance and clarity that we so desire when there's so many questions around us? We look the same place the first disciples did. We look to Jesus. <clears throat> and here's what Jesus said to his disciples as Matthew wrote it down at the very end of his gospel. So you can kind of see the whole teaching of Jesus. It's wrapping up. 
And the disciples are going to go spend this last interaction with their teacher, with their friend, with their Lord and Savior. And I can only imagine that in their hearts, all of these questions, politics, economics, ethnic, uh, racial divisions, all of these questions are full on their minds. So let's see what Jesus says to them in his last teaching in this gospel. This is Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 17. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I love that phrase. All authority on heaven and on earth. And I can just see the disciples going like, oh, yes, good. I'm so glad you said that, Jesus, because we're glad your authority is over the Roman Empire's political authority. We're glad your authority is over our economic distress of the day. We're glad that your authority is greater than the ethnic divisions of our day. So Jesus, now that you've said you've got the authority, I'm so glad. Can you go ahead and kind of build that road for us. We'd like it if you started placing some bricks down. Maybe if you painted them yellow so that we knew what the path looked like for us to follow navigating this complicated world we live in. You have the authority, Jesus. Just build that yellow brick road for us and we're going to walk it. Answer these questions. And here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I just, I can't help but think. I can't help but think that if I was there at that time and I heard Jesus speak what we often call the Great Commission, I can't help but think that some of the disciples might be like, hold on, Jesus, but I have a follow-up question. Hold on, Jesus, I've got a few issues that you're not really addressing in this letter right now, and I'd like to bring them up with you. And Jesus says, shh, no, 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 no. I'm going to keep it focused right here. I know there's a lot of things distracting you, but I'm going to keep it focused. This saying has four verbs in it. One of them is an imperative. It's a command. And the other three are participles. They're supporting verbs. Now, in English, you might be tempted to think that the main command is that first one, go. It's a little complicated, confusing in the English that way, but in fact, the focal point of this whole teaching of Jesus is the one command, which is make disciples. Jesus' command is to make disciples. What does it look like to make disciples? He puts three verbs on it. You make disciples by going. You make disciples by baptizing. And you make disciples by teaching 
everything that Jesus has taught you. And then we say, yeah, but Jesus, what about the coronavirus? Make disciples. Okay, but Jesus, you know, I've been doing my retirement planning and my financial planner didn't account for a global pandemic in these plans. Make disciples. Yeah, but Jesus, what about the Democrats? Or Jesus, what about the Republicans? Make disciples. Yeah, but Jesus, have you seen that candidate or that candidate? Make disciples. But Jesus, there's so many questions I have that are so unanswered, and there's so much uncertainty. I know, I know, I know. I'm going to give you some certainty. Make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching them everything that I have taught you. Yeah, but Jesus, yeah, but Jesus. He follows up with this. Here's the promise. Here's the certainty in the midst of uncertainty. Here's the clarity that we so long for. Maybe not to our satisfaction, but definitely what we need more than answers to any of our questions. He says, I know what you're facing. I knew it 2,000 years ago with my first followers in Jerusalem. I know what you're going through today. And whatever it is, I am with you always. Do you have fear? Do you have anxiety? I know. I am with you always. Remember when I was in the, in the boat with the disciples in the storm and everybody was freaking out? And I was with you. Remember when the thousands were hungry on the hillside? I was with you. Remember when we were being attacked by the religious authority and we were scared? I was with you. And you know what I did through all of that? I taught you how to be a disciple. Here's what I think Jesus is inviting those disciples to do, and here's what I think Jesus is inviting us to do. He's basically saying what Jesus did for them. He's saying, hey, do you remember what I did for you? Do you remember what it was like to be with you? Do you remember what I said and how I behaved? What Jesus did for them, he said they go and do for others. Jesus was with us, and he set an example. And he said, when I am with you, you can know for certain that amidst all the uncertainty, the kingdom of God will be advancing. So here's the closing questions that I want us to ask ourselves. Worship team's going to come back up. Um, We're going to go into a closing song. And if it's true that not only examining our lives and reflecting it, but letting ourselves be challenged, not, not just to beat us down or discourage us, but challenged so that we might grow into more of the people God has designed us to be, I'd invite you to take seriously these questions. First, what has Jesus done for you? What is it? What is the work that God himself, through Christ, has done in your life? Can you pause for a moment and remember and reflect on what has Jesus done for you? It all starts with one basic thing. 
Every one of us has some guilt in our hearts, and that guilt can eat at us and gnaw us away. And that guilt can cause all sorts of like self-doubt and self-shame, even self-hatred. And God whispers and says, hey, 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 hey. I have forgiven all of it. Maybe Jesus gives you strength. Maybe Jesus has given you peace in anxiety. Maybe Jesus has given you reconciliation in broken relationships. Take a minute and remember, what has Jesus done for you? I just want to acknowledge, maybe some of you listening would say, I I don't know if Jesus has done anything for me. I don't, this is a little weird. This is new. This is strange. Totally fine. Start right there. And if you'd like to know about how much change can come in life, about how much peace and joy can come in life from God through Jesus because of his work in our lives. If you want to know that, please reach out to us. You can get any pastor's email on the website. If you want to be really crazy and bold, throw something in the YouTube chat right now. Somebody, I guarantee, uh, would love to talk to you. But what has Jesus done for you? And then once you've acknowledged that, here's the next question. And I'm sorry, this might, this might poke a little. Are you doing that for others? Whatever Jesus has done for you in your life, are you passing that on to others? Another way to say it would be with your life, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the fears and the uncertainties in your life, are you making disciples? Teaching the way of Christ, of forgiveness, of grace, of generosity, of love, of living to the standard of the kingdom of God, of going, of baptizing, of reaching out to meet people where they're at. Are we a group making disciples? My hope is this, that no matter our circumstances, we keep our focus on the one thing which is certain, Jesus is with us so that we might go and make disciples as he has already done for us. Pray with me. God, we confess so much of the world that we live in feels overwhelming. So we ask that you would strengthen us with the knowledge of your presence. Amen.